Luke chapter 1, for those of you who just kind of, who are visiting, those of you who have just been to our church, we've been, we've just started the Gospel of Luke, and we are kind of taking the slow walk of kind of trekking through it to pick up all of the amazing riches that we find in this Gospel. As you, um, as you might have also heard, the story of Jesus is a story for sinners and sufferers like us, and this Gospel in particular is one that's always demonstrating the gospel and showing the gospel kind of in this raw, real-life type of sense. And this story this morning has no difference here. So if, you're, if you've turned over there, there's Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 56. Now before we get there, before we start diving in, recently I, hit, I heard this song that just hit me. And I don't know if you guys are, are the same, if you're kind of like me, but sometimes... If I'm listening, maybe I'm in the car, I'm listening to something, song hits me and it grips and it kind of captures a moment or something that is that you that I hadn't quite experienced before or it just kind of really hits home. And this song that I was listening to is the song called Pictures of Mountains and I won't sing it for you. Instead, I'll just kind of tell you what it's about, okay? But I was struck by them because the song is essentially about Seeking something real, that desire to seek something real, but remaining content with representations, with pictures. Kind of having this longing for a simple joy of discovery, yet choosing to read social media posts, choosing to read reviews instead of discovering something for yourself. Kind of longing for friendship yet subjecting yourself to just social media. And as this kind of story song finds its end, the entire perspective changes, and this is what really gripped me, because then finally, the singer now experiences the real thing. The pictures of mountains are confronted with reality. What he had tried to do to soothe his satisfactions found their end as his heart met what he had been chasing after all along. And this is what it says. He says, I thought I knew what a mountain was like till I stood in the valley and looked up at the sky. And I felt my heart beating faster. That feeling I'd been chasing after is something that no one can capture in pictures of mountains. Songs have a power of reflecting the condition of the heart. This song is our human condition of settling for insignificant things when we're offered the real things in Christ. Which is why we need songs like Mary's this morning. Luke chapter 1, verses 56, verse 46 through 56 is in, a, is in a historic passage. It's Mary's song, or what we've also historically titled Mary's Magnificant. And it's passages like this that let us peer into the dimensions of a heart breaking into worship. What we discover is that when, when blessing breaks through the individual, worship breaks out. And in this passage, Mary just shows us the depth of worship within her and then the width of that worship 
extending beyond herself to Israel and then and to us. That's why we titled this message Worship Dimensions, because in all of this response to this prophetic blessing of the unborn John the Baptist reacting to the Messiah that's in utero, to the praise of Elizabeth, we see this breaking out, this breakout of worship from Mary through song. So we're going to take this passage this morning in two parts. We're going to be looking first at the depth of worship, and then followed by the width of worship. Would you guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open our eyes, open our ears to the glory of Jesus so that we may capture the depth of his love in us and that that deep understanding of who he is through the knowledge of the Holy Spirit, we would be able to rejoice and celebrate that and worship widely and we would get to see just how far your gospel goes. We love you in Christ's name, amen. So this is verses 46. If you'd follow along with me, verse 46 through 49, it reads this. Mary said, My soul praises the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, because the mighty one has done great things for me, and his name will be blessed. So we're going to pause there. We're just going to reflect on these opening words. These opening words are an unforgettable expression, an, elevate, an elevation of her soul's posture. Our translation, it reads, my soul praises the greatness of the Lord. But others read, and I think each translation you find, there's going to be a, uh, the same kind of message, but it's going to be a little bit different kind of nuance. So we also have other passages that read, my soul magnifies the Lord. Or literally, my soul makes great the Lord. But it's just our first example of faith deepening in her understanding of God and then breaking out into worship. So notice this, this personal response that we get to God's grace, that we get to rejoice in God's grace. My spirit rejoices. Generations will call me blessed. He has done great things for me. This is a personal expression of worship, and that's precisely because worship is deeply personal. Worship in its design is deeply personal as an experience and as a transformative action of picturing and understanding our, our uh, position before God and yet realizing that we are being elevated to something far grander than we can fully comprehend. And this is a similar response to what we see in the scriptures in general. We see over the course of the scriptures, people looking up to, looking up to God, worshiping him from a lowly posture. And one very similar example is Hannah in 1 Samuel. You guys remember Hannah? Hannah 
didn't just sing a song, but she prayed. And she prayed after being, um, after discovering that she's going to be pregnant, she's going to give birth to a son after living a life of barrenness. Now, there's something similar that happens in, in Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And notice those first words and the same kind of posture that she makes as, this, as her understanding of faith is deepening, her uh, worship is now breaking up. But listen to this. It says, this is verse, chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. It says, Hannah prayed, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is lifted up by the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. What Mary's experiencing is something deep that reflects and goes back all throughout history. But here's the thing about people. People like to dampen good things. Am I right? You know, kind of the pessimistic side of human nature, of the human condition, is to kind of downplay miraculous things or downplay moments of connection in history. So, for example, there is a wide audience of biblical scholars out there who do not believe that Mary actually wrote this song. And they have multiple things. They say, you know, they say, how could, first they ask, how could this poor, lowly woman of Nazareth, this young teenager, how could she have even made this? Nearly every line in, in her song is an Old Testament reference. So these assumptions are what's made. First, Luke had to have put it in later. Luke had to put it in later because he's far more educated, he's a doctor, and he saw that this story needed something. There's other people who say, no, it's actually just a past Maccabean text that's maybe planted inside of this and added for some extra drama. Or maybe she was so uneducated in the Old Testament scriptures, there could have been no way, therefore, someone who we don't know had to write it for her. But that kind of perspective is one we don't believe simply because our God is far greater than criticisms of people's experience and witness and testimony. So what we get to see is what I want to show you in this, that she did in fact write it. But what we are seeing is someone deepening their faith by internalizing the scriptures. So we have to remember that just because Mary was young doesn't mean that she was not Jewish. She was Jewish, and in that Israelite um, culture, all young Israelites knew songs of the scriptures by heart. This is something that they would reflect on. This is what they would sing at weddings. They would sing them in funerals. They would sing them in pastime. It's similar to like the American cultural experience that we have certain American songs that are just kind of passed down. So even in a sense of people not practicing, not hearing from God, these songs culturally are going to be kind of continued on. 
So because of this, Hannah's song, and I mean Hannah's prayer, was in Mary. And remember, guys, that she had been traveling for days to greet Elizabeth. And just thinking about all that had happened to her. There's a great power of God speaking to us in the silent, reflective moments. Right? Have you guys had that? Where you're walking, where things are quiet? Maybe it's a drive, and you don't want to listen to the music this time. You don't want to hear anything. You just kind of want to hear the car go. And in those moments, maybe perhaps a verse that you had been thinking about, maybe a verse pops up, and all of a sudden that scripture has an entirely new application on your life as you're reflecting on that drive. With Mary, it's the same kind of instance. Mary's been walking for days, and Hannah's prayer is in her. It is inside the scriptures, what we're experiencing now, after Elizabeth just praises and then affirms what had been happening. Gabriel talking to her, walking, thinking about it, putting all of these pieces together like, I am carrying the Messiah. Then Elizabeth saying, yes, you are carrying the Messiah. All of a sudden, what breaks forth is a new sense of the scriptures being alive in her. The kindling faith that these songs spoke about had now been ignited through a fire of the Holy Spirit who made the scriptures connect in a new way that had never once happened before. The meaning of the scriptures finally applied that is the power of application. That's the reason why we want the scriptures in us. She was awakened to a knowledge and now applied it into her circumstances. Christian, if the Bible is not in you, it will not come out of you. If the Bible is not in you, it will not come out of you. A teacher I once, I, I deeply respect, he would often tell students when he would ask them about their devotional life, he would ask them, how's your Bible study going? How's your time with the Lord going? Are you in the word, right? That's a, that's a phrase that we hear often, are you in the word? To which they would respond, yeah, I'm in the word. But then he would back it up, he said, you may be in the Bible, but is the Bible in you? Is the Bible in you? Friends, the way that we can know and have confidence is this, is in these moments of stress, in these moments of anxiety, or maybe in the moments of everyday life that just happen. Is scripture bursting forth? Is, is scripture kind of coming out of you in ways? Are you finding joy in the scriptures? Devotional life, reading it, getting it in deep. Is it coming out in the regular senses? Now, if we don't quite know what that means, if maybe there's a misconnection there, let me give you, uh, I'll give you a fun example, uh, and then I'll give you more of a serious example. So this is, this is one time I saw scripture in, in someone and kind of coming out. 
And this is an example from our friend Asher Laurie. He's, I think he's six or seven. He's, he's in the back over here. But last year, Asher and my son Gabe, we were driving in, uh, we were driving somewhere. I was driving them, and they started telling jokes back and forth to each other. And as they were kind of telling jokes, it was pretty funny in the back of the car. But then Asher delivered a really good one, where he says, he says, I've got a joke. How long will Jesus reign in heaven and on earth? And I look back, and he goes, to infinity and beyond. <laughs> that is amazing. And I was like, I was like, that is an awesome joke and super biblical. <laughs> like, like, how did you even think about that? And it, it was awesome. This was a super funny moment. Uh, but that, so you have that. And those are wonderful moments that we get to celebrate because God is good. God is with us. God is in us through the scriptures. We celebrate that. But let me give you another personal one. So this was when Amy and I, when we were living in Guam, we were just going through a really difficult time. Uh, I think this was when um, Elliot was, she was pregnant with Elliot, and uh, it was a difficult pregnancy that we were having. And I remember at that same time that we were just going through a lot of difficulties, I was in an English lit class. And that week was all about you need to write a deeply personal poem. And it's like, I don't know about you guys, but man, I just didn't want to write a poem when I was feeling bad. You know, it's going to be depressing. It's not going to go well. And, and I remember putting it off for a while, but then it kind of came ahead one evening where just things were really difficult. I was really challenged. And as I'm sitting there thinking about the different processes, a thought comes to my mind, which is a question, which is, how long, Lord? And as I thought that, I felt the poem baby. It was like, I should probably write this down. It's like the poem's coming out, you know. I don't know what it is. It might be bad, but, I, I, you know, I'm finding a pen. I don't know why my eyes were closed. They probably weren't. But, you know, I, I go down, and then I just start writing this poem out. And as I'm writing it out, um, I was like, okay, we're going to turn this baby in, right? We're going to turn this poem baby in. So I turned it in, and the one response that I got from my instructor was, this is, he, he kind of wrote on the side of the paper, very Psalm 13 of you. It's like, what? <laughs> I don't remember Psalm 13. <laughs> I've never read that. So I go back and I read it, and this is what it says. Psalm 13, verses 1 through 2. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? To my surprise, not trying hard, my faith was deepening because the scriptures were coming out and they were the reflection that I needed. Worship has depth to it. When we saturate ourselves in the scriptures, a deepening faith is one where a visceral reaction reflects scripture. We want to memorize scripture. We want to memorize Bible stories. 
for this reason. So we can tell awesome jokes. Or so that in these moments of difficulty, what our response and reaction that comes out of us may even surprise us. That's the depth of worship. As our worship deepens, it also expands, widening into worship with others so that they too can partake in what we've been impacted by. So let's read together verses 50 through 55 as we kind of see the width of worship. The width of worship, verse 50. His mercy is from generation on those, generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. So the song is moving from a, a singular individual perspective, and now it's broadening out, right? It's moving out from a personal perspective to now a corporate experience. As a believer is lifted into the righteousness through Christ, the result should always be this. It should always be a celebration of God's character and an invitation to join. Worship that is wide moves from an individual response, meaning God has done great things for me, to a corporate response. God has done great things for us. But notice, too, that each phrase that she shares here hinges on the character of God in his past mercy to Israel, continuing on, continuing his mercy through this coming son. It's the surprising dynamic that we see that he will not, he not only has demonstrated his, his mercy, but that he will continue to do so. But it won't be through powerful leaders. It won't be through the assumptions that human and that Jewish leaders and the Pharisees would make. He's going to bless and lift up the humble. He's going to bless and lift up the lowly. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. The Bible is saturated with examples of this as well of proud people, not just of, of humble people looking at what God is doing great things for them, but also of proud people being humbled. Proud people propping themselves up with an ego to only to get a reality check from the Lord's presence. This is a phrase that I want, I want us to think about. Pride has no place in grace. Pride has no place in grace. And it's suggested that Mary had King Nebuchadnezzar in mind for verse 51. Verse 51, if he has done a mighty deed with his arm and he has scattered the proud 
because of the thoughts of their hearts. So I don't know if you remember King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar was one of the greatest kings in the history of the world, being king over Babylon. But he also was one of the most, one of history's most egotistical kings. And his ego was so big that he couldn't even control it, despite the divine warnings to repent. So one day, the story that we find in Daniel chapter 4 is King Nebuchadnezzar is looking out on top of his, on his rooftop of his, of his kingdom, and he's looking out over Babylon. And as he looks over it, he exclaims. It says he exclaims, like his visceral reaction is this. Is this not Babylon, the great that I have built to be a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory? But before he could even finish everything he wanted to share about himself, God intervened and God changed his mind and spoke a disciplinary judgment on him to where all of a sudden he would believe that he's a farm animal and he's an ox. And the story changes to where then he, his mind turns and he begins to run out of the castle and eat grass for seven years. And his hair grows long and all this weird stuff. And it's a weird story. That's weird. It's also a warning. Not necessarily in the fact that we could make that a sweeping generalization that if you have an ego, you will become an ox. That's not what we're saying. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that there is a danger to let pride become the visceral reaction of your soul. Because pride does not have a place in a place in grace. But here's where we get to see the mercy of King Nebuchadnezzar and why it's so beautifully connected in with our story. It's because after seven years, after this period of him eating grass, being outside, living in wildlife, letting his hair grow long, letting his fingernails get all gross and stuff, one of the proudest egocentric kings in all of history makes the declaration those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And friends, the danger is, is that we get to see that and we say, thank God for his mercy. Thank God for his grace on us. But it also lets us peer into the dangers of the human condition, of fallenness. When though we want to, praise God, there can sometimes be a pride stirring within us. And we need to know the truth about that pride, which is that pride misplaces us in a false position. It moves our eyes from looking up at God's greatness to looking down on the ground and trying to make ourselves a little taller than we actually are. It tries to puff us up just a little bit more. 
And the danger of that is, friends, we live in a culture that prizes pride. It prizes that. How many movies have you seen? How many movies have you seen where someone's like, I'm the king of the world, right? And they're standing on a rooftop. Sometimes, for some reason, I'm only thinking of Titanic, but there are others, right, that, that are like that. This, this elevation that we have a temptation to follow, we have to understand where it's coming from. And we can't let pride misplace us in a false position. Because going back to Mary's song, deepening faith that reflects scripture keeps our eyes upward and gets us in understanding the reality of what these temptations can bring. But it focuses us on the blessing that we have in Christ, of the blessing that was given to us despite all of our difficulties and despite our temptations, God is there moving within us. And Jesus lifts us up. He lifts the humble, those who are submitting to his will, into a place of honor. And Jesus made this abundantly clear in Luke chapter 6 when he preached the Beatitudes and he was preaching before his disciples and before everybody else. I don't think we have this slide up. So I'm going to just read this for you. It says Luke chapter 6, verse 20 through 23. Listen to the words of Jesus. Then looking up at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, because the kingdom of God is yours. Blessed are you who are now hungry, because you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, because you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Because take note, your reward is great in heaven. For this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. That is the good news, church. That Jesus' blessing lifts the believer from lowly sinners and sufferers like us to kingdom ambassadors. The church is to be a people the world recognizes as altogether different because the church is the place where we elevate the glory of God and in doing so, we recognize our need for the Savior and he lifts us up out of our difficulties. He lifts us up out of our challenges. And he lets us go out into the world proclaiming his name. And as that happens, as that faith deepens, as that worship is breaking out, what also happens? Some way unbeknownst to us, you can't put it on strategy, you can't put it on method or technique or anything. You can only put it on the Holy Spirit. This faith widens. This worship widens. 
and we get to experience in the right posture the church growing, the width of worship getting wider and wider as every tribe, nation, and tongue declare Jesus as Lord. Which is why, friends, your relationship with Christ has significant importance for the kingdom. Your relationship with Christ has significant importance. You matter to the kingdom. Your testimony matters. Your testimony brings encouragement, just like Nathan's did for us. It brings encouragement because it, remi it reminds us of how God is widening his church and the worship that happens within that continues to grow and to stretch. And it's also the sense that it just shows us Jesus's grace that, that we can demonstrate to our neighbor and that faith can also stretch all the way across and encourage a fellow believer somewhere in Cambodia. Right? Worship is not local, it's global. One of the most significant experiences that I've ever had as a believer was worshiping in this men's Bible study when I lived in Cambodia. Every person, when I was sitting there in this circle, every person was from a different country. I was the American, someone was from Germany, we had a couple of uh, guys that were locals there in Cambodia. We had someone from Australia. And yet, while we're sitting together, reading God's word, it's deepening in our faith together by applying the scriptures to our lives. But also, we're recognizing that each one of us from far different experiences and backgrounds Far different pains and trials and temptations are now seeing the magnitude of Christ through his church as it's spread out throughout the entire world. It was amazing. It was amazing. But I don't have to go to Cambodia to experience that again. Because I have you guys. And you guys have me. And we have each other to lean into our past experiences and to see God's grace triumphant. We get to see God's grace in those moments. We get to experience that Christ is not somewhere far off, but that he's right here with us. Paul says in Ephesians 3, verse 17 through 19, or the second half of 17, he says, I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So Paul is doing a reflection of what Mary's doing. He's speaking to the individual I pray that you, you being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with who? With all the saints. 
that you may be able to comprehend your experience with all the saints, that you may be able to understand in a, depth, in, a, in a new way the depth of Christ in you and transforming you in a new way so that all of you may see just these worship dimensions of God's love. But as we wrap up, I do want to note and draw your attention to verse 56. Because though we might think of it as just a passing verse, it actually has a lot of importance and application for us. Verse 56, it just reads this. If you look down at your Bibles, it says, And Mary stayed with her about three months. Then she returned to her home. It sounds simple, and yet it's profound. Because it doesn't say, Mary hid in fear. It doesn't say, Mary filled her day with a busy schedule so that she wouldn't have to think about the stresses that are coming. It says Mary tried to play video games with her friends so that she wouldn't think about what was happening. She wasn't escaping from reality. Instead, she was walking toward it. Now that she had been encouraged, filled up, been affirmed in her faith, She's now going to go do that thing that she was, that could be the scariest thing of her life. Mary goes back to her life in Nazareth, changed by the length, the width, the height, and the depth of God's love. So I want to put two words before you as we're kind of wrapping up our time together. And these two words are simple, me and we to reflect on the condition of our hearts and to worship Jesus deeply and widely, we need to prioritize these two things, me and we, personal worship. God wants to meet with me personally. And I can have moments in my day that will directly combat that truth. I can read the scriptures and I can still have a deep belief that God does not want to hear from me. But like a loving father, God's intent for us is to speak his truth, to comfort us in our current circumstances and bring wisdom about in life to show just how real he is. You don't have to settle for the artificial things. When you have the real thing at, at your hand, you have the real thing here. Jesus faced loneliness. Jesus faced cruelty from others, and he died on the cross for our sin, for your sin. He was buried and rose again so that you you, Christian, may be transformed in the height and the depth of his love for you. But then there's also the second element of that, which is the communal worship, which is the we. If I only keep my faith to myself, and I hold back from worshiping Christ with others, if I only make it a personal thing, I'm missing out. I'm missing out. 
Because God wants to meet with me, not just personally. He wants to meet with me corporately. He wants me to visually see the beauty and wonder of his majesty and of his grace with others. So that when I compare my past circumstances with others, I am renewed and I'm growing in wisdom in their faith. We make a kingdom impact by worshiping together. By testifying to God's greatness together when we baptize each other, when we partake in the Lord's Supper together, in our public worship, we experience the length and the width of God's love for his people and for the world. So friends, don't settle for artificial comforts, as tempting as they may be. Remind yourselves through the scriptures that we discover the difference Jesus makes as your soul, as our souls rest and respond to his goodness and his grace. Only through Jesus do we get to experience that. Because of Jesus, we get to worship deeply and we get to worship widely. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. And we ask that you would set our hearts on fire for you. Help us understand the depth and magnitude of Jesus' sacrifice for us and to your glory. God, as we go out living this week, I pray that the subtle distractions that can become so harmful to us would be eliminated or at least be shown in their real light so that our full joy would be found in our intimate relationship with you. Help us read the scriptures and let the scriptures be ignited on fire in our souls so that they would erupt forth and they would break out into worship. God, only you can do that. We can read words. We can read things, but it would not connect to our hearts if we didn't have your spirit guiding us and helping us. So I pray as we go out this week that we would set the scriptures as a priority to recognize that you give us them so that we would worship personally and we would worship corporately and we would get to see the full magnitude of your love for us. We love you and thank you for Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.